The Lord God called to the man and asked him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? For the longest time when I heard this familiar line out of the book of Genesis, I was struck by the oddity of our Lord's question to Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Is Adam's nakedness meant to be a secret from him? Did God intend that Adam had this ignorance of his nakedness all his life? Isn't it the greater issue that Adam disobeyed God's one of, one of God's commandments and ate of the tree, right? Why doesn't God ask that? It's like God is missing the whole point. Or like the serpent has actually proven himself here, right? If you eat of this fruit, God knows that you will have your mind opened, said Satan. Adam and Eve, those ignorant fools, didn't know they were naked, and God wanted to keep them in their ignorance. And they would have been ignorance if not that pesky serpent had come and told them the truth, lifted the veil from their eyes, right? That's what it sort of sounds like. It's almost as if this one question from God is proving everything that Satan told to Eve. God just wants mindless drones. He wants people who will till the earth, wander about in his little garden, mindless about the rest of the universe. At least that's how fallen humanity should read it, right? Or usually does read it. We immediately see the poverty of the situation. Humanity's story in Scripture starts off with this dissonant chord. Man is lacking something. Clothing. God made man naked. That is, God made him without something that he needed, right? Any reasonable man would assume that they need clothing, so why did God make them without it? Why were they naked? It's the sort of the same way that we see the Immaculate Conception. When we try to explain this feast day to children, we often like to make the distinction, right? This is not the miraculous conception, by which we mean Mary, the ever-blessed mother, conceived our Lord in her womb. This is the Immaculate Conception, where we mean that Mary was conceived without sin. We immediately see it as a negative, conceived without sin, right? Everything else has sin, but Mary, she's the exception, the negative. She's the one who lacks the stain of sin. Who told you that you were naked? When the Archangel Gabriel appears before our Blessed Lady on that spring day in March nearly 2,000 years ago, what words did he say to her? Hail, you who are conceived without sin, you who were stained, unstained by original sin, the negative. Are these his words? No. Gabriel speaks positively, hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. He says, full of grace, that is, the kingdom of God is in you in a fullness, a strength, a firmness that no other creature possesses. We're not speaking about a lack of anything here. Mary is humanity at its fullness, as it should have been, as it would have been without sin. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord's question in the garden is not one made in incredulity, as if Satan had solved for Adam and Eve the riddle that God hoped they wouldn't figure out. God is pointing out the lie. Satan, 
the father of lies that we call him, has lied to Eve. Think about that dialogue about the fruit, right? Satan asked Eve, did God tell you not to eat the fruit in the tree of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And Eve says, we may eat of the trees of the fruit of the garden, but of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, we shall not eat lest we die. And Satan, the liar, says, you will not die. For God knows that the moment you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You see, there's a twofold lie here, right? The first lie is that God wants us to be beneath him, not like him. But the second is the greater lie, that Eve wasn't already like God. Think about when Eve was created. God says, let us make man in our own image. In our own image and likeness, let us create him. Male and female, let us create them. Eve didn't know her own identity. She is already like God. That's how she was made. Made by God for God to be like God. But because she didn't know her identity, right? A beloved daughter of God, created in his image. Because she didn't know that, she was able to be lied to by Satan. God is hiding something from you. That's what Satan is saying. You're lacking something which is rightfully yours. The way God made you is incomplete without this thing that I'm going to offer you. God's work is good. Mine is better. Eat of this. Clothe yourself with this. Adam and Eve's fig leaves are no mere clothing to hide their nakedness. It's the costume of sin. And then enters Mary, the new Eve. That's what the church calls her. What words do... Does Mary hear from her cousin Elizabeth? Blessed are you who believe that the Lord's words to you would be fulfilled, says Elizabeth. Mary presents herself in this feast day as the one woman who was able to believe in God's promise. Be it done unto me according to your words. Her yes to God reverses the no of Eve. You see, you and I, we are the ones who are lacking. We lack the grace, the sinlessness that should be ours. It was robbed from us by the wicked serpent. But God is patient. He's willing to wait for us to find our way back to him. But we must stay on our guard so that we are not fooled again. And one way we can be fooled is to assume that if we seem to be externally growing in good works or we're starting to look like better people, that we sort of feel like we're making our way back, right? That grace is increasing in our hearts. And it is, right? But we start to put on this costume and play the fool's part. We start to act like growing in holiness. Sorry, we start to act like the look of holiness, right, is actually growing in holiness, Right? And so we want to do all the things that you got to do. Right? We, want to, we want people to see us when we come to church. Right? Or we want people to see us when we're praying or whatever it is. Right? Because that will make us feel holier. So sometimes you hear people who are really making attempts at growing in holiness. And they say things like, I'm not making any progress. I feel like I'm getting worse. I hear that in the confession all the time. Right? There's a mistake in that line of thinking. We can confuse grace and holiness with the practice of virtue. Or rather, what, I'm, what I mean to say is we, we can confuse this emotional experience of religion as a sign of grace, right? Why is it when I come to Mass, I'm just bored? 
I don't feel like there's anything happening to me. I don't leave Mass feeling happy, right? We confuse the emotion with grace. That somehow if I'm not bursting into tears when I come to Mass, right, then I must not be really fulfilling the moment of prayer. They used to joke in seminary about those youth retreats where it seems like they just judge the success of the retreat by how many box of Kleenexes you can go through in a weekend, right? That's not really the point, right? God is not here to give us happy feelings, right? He's here to give us substance, truth. Or likewise, if we feel that we are being tempted more or we feel abandoned, then we imagine that God must be withdrawing his grace. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at what was said. The kingdom of God cannot be confused with sinlessness or with the practice of virtue or with sentiments, right? Sinlessness is good. We should strive for it. But it was not because of Mary's lack of sin that she became the mother of God, right? Mary was destined to be the queen of angels because she was full of something, full of grace. And grace is given to us freely. Mary didn't earn it, right? And neither can any of us. But we can beg God for it. It's not ours to take, like the fruit. It wasn't ease to take. But God gives us grace as we ask it. So we have to prepare ourselves to receive it. And it isn't really hard to figure out how we do that, right? We have to completely surrender ourselves to the Lord so that he can fill us up. Naked in the garden. It's just an intentional image, fully exposed to God. Be it done to me, Lord, as you will, according to your word. So for us to surrender ourselves, we have to pray. I've been saying this for weeks. We have to pray consistently. We have to be dedicated to the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist. We have to garner a love of suffering, which is not something that we talk about a lot in the church, right? But when we face sufferings, especially when we face sufferings after trying to do good things or trying to help people, that's when we're able to grow in grace. Right? Sometimes we, we feel all these sufferings and it must be a sign that God's not you know, with us or we're not doing well, but it's really usually the opposite. The more we strive to serve the Lord, the more we're going to rub against Satan and feel that suffering. It's all through the Gospels, Right? We are going to suffer if we're going to be serious about becoming holy. I was listening, I didn't have this in my podcast, but I was in my homily. I was listening to a podcast today, and Bishop Robert Barron was talking about the Wheel of Fortune and not the the, uh, game show, but in the Middle Ages, they had this idea of the Wheel of Fortune where you have the king on the top of the wheel and the wheel's turning and then his crown falls off and he ends up at the bottom and he's a pauper and then he has to climb himself back up. And that's really what happens in in our holiness. We start off thinking we're all looking great. But as we dive deeper into our sin, we realize just how poor we are. Only for God to raise us back up. Think about a mother who suffers in labor, but then forgets that when she sees her child. Our Lord's suffering on Calvary was sweetened when he breathed his last. It's finished. 
So we should not see our own sufferings as a sign of God's rejection. That's why there's that great quote, I think it's Teresa of Avila, who says, Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, it's a wonder why you have so few. To make our surrender, we must be devoted to fulfilling the duties of our vocation, right? The duties of our marriage, the duties of parenthood, the duties of whatever our state of life is. Whatever it may be, right? A chaste living, generosity, love, compassion, fidelity. A lot of times we seem to be asking ourselves constantly, right? Is, is this enough? For God? Is God going to be finally satisfied with what I'm doing here, right? Is it enough that I can attend Mass to fulfill a holy day of obligation on a Wednesday of the week, right? Is that enough, God? Have you kept enough scores? Is it, is it enough that I go to confession once a year? Is it enough that I don't eat meat on Fridays during Lent? Is it enough that I say my prayers, that I spend hours working for the Lord, that I exhaust myself for Him? When is it enough? When will I have done enough that God will finally respond to me? When will he finally give me the happiness that I won't? The moment we ask that question, we stop surrendering, right? If we ever started surrendering to begin with. Mary's example shows us that it isn't enough until there's nothing left. She gives herself entirely. Everything changes in her life. The future of her marriage, the future of her motherhood, any success she could have ever wanted or imagined, God has radically transformed it. Not stolen it, transformed it for her. Or rather, God has given her permission to fulfill the plan he had for her from when time began. From the moment that Eve first listened to the serpent's lie. So let us all run to Mary as we strive to make the surrender. Let us live as she lived, loving God only, desiring God only, trying to please God only in all that we do. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever.